Hello and welcome to our podcast on the EU Mercosur trade deal. We are Emma, Reshma and Simon, students at the National University of Ireland in Galway. As part of the International Human Rights Law Clinic, we are working with activist Sergia, a member of Talambeo, looking at the intersection between the EU Mercosur trade deal and human rights. We are examining what impact the EU-Mercosur trade deal will have on the environment and how the agreement will be in contrast to international human rights standards. This is our first episode. You are listening to Emma and Sersha interviewing Laura Kehoe, a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Oxford. Now enjoy! Hello, my name is Emma, and on this episode, I am joined by Saoirse McHugh, who is an environmentalist, grower and member of Tall of Bio. Saoirse comes from Ackle Island, and her work has mainly centred on agricultural topics, including seed saving, food sovereignty and many issues specific to Ireland's agricultural landscape. Today, we will be speaking to Dr. Laura Kehoe, a conservation scientist with the Nature Conservancy and the University of Oxford. Laura is the author of an excellent paper called Inclusion, Transparency and Enforcement, How the EU-Mercosur Trade Agreement Fails the Sustainability Test. This paper has been published on One Earth and we have provided a link to it on the podcast description. So today Saoirse and I will be chatting to Laura about the EU-Mercosur Trade Agreement, the human rights and environmental impacts of the agreement and some ideas that came up in Laura's paper, as well as what she would like to happen in international trade. Yeah, so I I think we'll probably start it. Is that, is everything all, is that all right, Emma? Yeah. Hey, Laura. So do you want to start off by introducing the EU-Mercosur deal as a trade agreement and what that actually means, what's involved, like in a general sense? So Mercosur, it actually means like Mercado del Sur, so like um, South Market. And it, it right now, the Mercosur block includes Brazil, Argentina, Uruguay and Paraguay. Um, a couple of other countries might join, but for now it's these four players. And they've been negotiating with the EU over this big trade deal for about two decades. It's been ages. Um It's been kind of sped up when Bolsonaro took power in Brazil. So um, it it really accelerated in the past few years. And that's for a couple of different reasons that I won't go into because they're not hugely interesting. But the point being that this deal, if it were to pass, would be one of the biggest trade deals in history. So it's been valued at about, I think it was 4 billion euro. Um, and that's because basically they they just make agreements for how much they're going to buy from each other of key commodities, right? And then you get discounts for those commodities, so you don't have to pay uh, quotas on them. So um, the EU has talked a lot about how this will help small businesses, help the little guy. But really, these trade deals, more often than not, they help the big guy. They help big corporations uh, to save money. Um, and actually often, like in the case of Argentina, 
Argentina had taken away some of its trade quotas and then got in some trouble economically. So re-implemented those quotas to get money back for their government because they were hitting a financial crisis. Um, and so there has been talk about how, yes, this trade deal will benefit business, but it takes away that power for governments to actually gain more income in times of crisis. So that's just one little point in terms of, okay, yes, there's benefits and savings possibly there, mm -hmm. but really big costs and risks even within those benefits. So even forgetting about the environment, forgetting about human rights, the world of economic benefits within these trade deals is also, in my view, super fishy. Um, so it's kind of, you know, they're, they're coining it as long-term financial security for the countries involved, but really there's, it's, it's going to be, would you say, short-term gain? Like how, I suppose, how is it that they, it, how, how would the deal impact negatively for, in, in an economic sense for the countries involved? I mean, we could take an example that's kind of just so absurd, it's nearly funny if it wasn't true. And it's a trade deal between the EU and Colombia that was made in, I think it was 2013. And um, the EU is now, or at least they were last year, I don't know what the, what the story is today, but they were basically bringing Colombia to the World Trade Organization, the equivalent of suing them over trying to charge more for Belgium frozen fries, French fries. So the EU is like forcing oh its frozen potatoes back on into the region where potatoes actually come from. And they officially come from Peru, but like they come from that region of the world, right? Mm -hmm. And Belgium is saying, no, 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 we invented the French fry and you must buy our French fries. 25 million a year. Oh my God. And, oh, that's crazy. I suppose from an Irish context, we always hear, oh, you know, it would it would bring in, I think it's like 99,000 tons of beef um, or something like that. Um, and if you were, I suppose, just listening in Ireland, you'd think Mercosur was solely about beef. But what yeah. other goods um, are involved or is beef the, the main good worth talking about? Um, so beef... Beef is a big one because the Irish Farmers Association have been really bringing that up quite a lot. The interesting thing is we're actually already importing huge amounts of beef from the Mercosur bloc. So we're we're actually already importing the amount that the quota would be. It's just that the trade deal locks us into that amount. So we wouldn't have flexibility there. We'd have to import that amount. And it would inject more money into the beef industry in uh, these countries and the beef industry is linked to terrible terrible things in terms of deforestation human rights abuses so we're like tying ourselves economically to this industry that's literally wrecking the earth um and yes it's 99 tons that's the new quota but we're already importing over 200,000 tons annually and this is the thing that's so often overlooked in this whole debate. It's like as if this EU Mercosur trade agreement would be like the end of the world when, in fact, we're already so embedded in trade with these countries and we're already fueling so much deforestation. So um, 
the but to answer your question um so the other things that would raise quite considerably in terms of agricultural commodities would be a new quota of 650,000 tons of sugar for ethanol um and right now we're only importing around 50,000 tons so the increase there is really huge and sugar um for ethanol for biofuels so this is um also causing deforestation in Latin America. There's a lot of areas being cleared for these um, vast kind of fields of intensive sugarcane crops. Okay. Um, the other, the other, like there's a lot of other stuff in the deal. There's a lot of like car parts from Germany. So Germany stands to gain quite a lot economically through car part sales. There's um, a lot of other bits and pieces in the actual agreement but I just know more about the agricultural stuff and the biggest hike is ethanol and um, soy won't actually change because we already get that tariff free but like again we already import more than 10 million tons of soy so the way I see this trade deal is it's like um last nails in a coffin kind of thing but the coffin's already been constructed and it's half in the ground. And just just to clarify one point there, you're saying, so we already bring in 200,000 tonnes, is it, of beef? The European Union, yeah. The European Union. So would the, um, the 99,000 tonnes that everyone is panicking about, would that be additionally or would that just secure that 99,000 tonnes were tariff-free? It could end up being additionally. Nobody actually knows. Um, so I looked into this really in depth because I wanted to figure it out, couldn't figure it out. And it turns out there's no answer. So oh, within, cool. within those, <laughs> there's like different types of beef. There's like fresh, frozen, pasture. There's all these different quotas within that. Ultimately, though, like different modeling approaches have been used to look into this question and they come out with different answers. So often they do come out with, you know, there will be an increase, but the amount that that increase will be is changes quite a lot. I think it was like five to 14 percent increase in one model. None of it's been published yet. Um, and so, yes, likely there will be an increase, but it probably won't be 99,000 tons. Um, so it's a funny situation because in a way I'm undermining the importance of the of this deal right in terms of environmental um, issues but when you zoom out a little bit and look at it from a distance you see actually this deal will be really good for the agri sector in Brazil for example and what's really good for such a corrupt sector that's causing so much damage is definitely really bad for the environment and indigenous peoples and local communities so they will save money even if even if we import less beef than the quota that we imported you know a couple of years ago we'll still be giving them higher profits because they'll be saving so it's 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 this thing whereby it's so deeply astonishingly broken um, this deal might provide an opportunity to fix some of that brokenness but right now um, it would need like a complete overhaul so Does that makes sense 
would you say what I'm hearing, like the winners of the deal, let's say, would be mostly the agricultural sector in the Mercosur countries? Mostly the sectors that gain in the Mercosur block are kind of primary production sectors. So agriculture, things like that. And then the sectors that gain in Europe are higher technology sectors like um, car production stuff and technological stuff. And that's another criticism of the deal that like it actually then outcompetes uh, Latin American businesses in sort of building on their technological sectors because they're already getting this stuff kind of cheap from Europe. So they're already sort of outcompeted before they get a foothold in these growing sectors that are highly profitable that don't cause so much deforestation. Okay. And in the deal on the European Commission website, there is a section on protecting the environment and they make certain pledges and they talk about committing to effectively implementing the Paris Climate Agreement. But what would be your um, opinion on whether, you know, these pledges and commitments are going to be actually effectively implemented? They've never been implemented in any deal in the past so yeah they have this thing where they include the precautionary principle and they say increased trade shouldn't come at the expense of the environment or labor conditions sounds great but they don't actually include any information on how to do this and how these standards will be set and enforced there is no legally binding standards in this deal at all and right now today 20% of all soy and 17% of all beef exported to the EU from the Cerrado and Amazon regions of Brazil are directly linked to deforestation, like right now today. And right now today, we are importing the equivalent of um, one football pitch of deforestation every three minutes from the Mercosur block to the EU. So we've been talking like 10 minutes, three football pitches since we began talking about this. and nothing done like nothing done to trace where we're getting this stuff from and also to know like as a consumer in Europe you don't know when if you eat meat you don't know if that animal was fed soy from this region because there's also like no labeling there there's no transparency there so people think oh you know Irish beef whatever but like that's in our industry soy is fed to all pretty much all livestock across Europe and it's coming from Brazil a lot of it. That was something interesting that you raised in the article there on on the One Earth article um, about in transparency and introducing software I think to ensure traceability of the product so can you expand on that a little bit how how would that actually look practically? Yeah yeah so in Uruguay, they have a really nice traceability system um, because they were worried about they had some health scares to do with them. I think it was foot of mouth. I can't remember. But anyway, each cow is traced electronically. So, you know exactly where it comes from. In Brazil, there's like cattle laundering where cows are raised on deforested land and then they're moved to a nice farm with certificates and they stay there for a few months and then they get their certificates as if they came from that farm. So are basically laundered through um, approved farms but I mean at the end of the day 
you know, it doesn't matter because Europe's just buying it anyway, right? And other countries too. So you could set up systems that could trace where you get your commodities from. It's like available today. We have the technology to do it. We just don't have the will to do it. The other thing though, that's worth mentioning on traceability. It's like, we definitely need traceability, but it won't actually solve it ultimately because say the EU brings in this fantastic, amazing traceability system and we know exactly where we buy everything from. We're not really solving the problem because we're actually just pushing the problem out of our view because other countries are probably then just going to buy the stuff that we're now not buying and deforestation will probably continue at the same rate. It'll just be sort of reshuffled. So ultimately what we need to do is um, ultimately what I think would be a really, really beautiful, succinct solution to this will be to say, OK, we're not trading with anybody that's not making progress towards their Paris Agreement commitments. Okay. So Brazil did agree to reduce deforestation a certain amount to hit a goal by, I think it was 2030. And they're not making any progress towards that. They're going in the opposite direction. So one beautiful thing to say would be, well, okay, we can't do business with countries that are actively destroying everybody's future. And we're not, we're not telling you what to do. You've already agreed to do these things. You're just not doing them. So mm -hmm. until you do them, sorry, door closed. And, and that's a way in which, you know, deals shouldn't even be negotiated with countries that are clearly ignoring um, international agreements on human rights and on climate change mitigation. So actually takes care of all those potential leakage effects of just tracing where our soy and our beef comes from. And so to ensure accountability, let's say, if there was, a, you know, one of the states in the agreement on either side breaching uh, the, the Paris Agreement or, let's say, the United, United Nations, the UNDRIP, mm -hmm. um, you think, would you say like that the, the best solution is to impose economic sanctions as opposed to like, like what other routes, routes to justice, let's say, would there be? I mean, the economic sanctions is an interesting one because you could be accused of, you know, a form of colonialism or a form of control, but we, we impose economic sanctions for a lot of different things already that appear to threaten our future, right, in terms of nuclear stuff. Mm. We never impose economic sanctions for what we know is literally destroying our future in terms of climate change. Um, so I think for me, it's merited. Like, I don't think we should be buying soy to feed our animals. If that soy comes from places that local communities are against it, clearly, you know, forests are being cut down. Um, so I don't think we should be buying that soy anyway. So if we impose, impose sanctions on things like that soy or that beef, fully makes sense to me to do that. Just, you know, thinking about it from a perspective of why the hell are we buying this in the first place mm -hmm. if it's so damaging? Um, and, and, and considering things like COVID, 
that we know, like we kind of see now that we need to actually get a little bit more food sovereignty anyway. Like Ireland has a good capacity to grow our own grain. Why aren't we doing it? Um, why are we so reliant on importing all of these foods and just raising a load of cows at home? Like, I think we really need to sort of take a step back and rethink that too, right? Um, but again, to answer your question, sorry, Sirsha, did you want to say something there? I kind of, um, like, for one, you know, it's also uh, questionable how effective economic sanctions actually are for preventing something. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you see it with the emissions trading system in Europe, like it doesn't really work. <laughs> um, you know, emissions don't go down. And so I often kind of, I have very little faith in um, economic mechanisms to alter behavior. And I do think like, especially in Ireland, when so much of our budget you know, our board be a budget um, and our Department of Agriculture budget goes one way or the other into expanding markets for beef and expanding markets for dairy all around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think there's, you know, obviously, you know, I'm talking about Ireland here and not Europe as a block, but within Ireland, there's so many more routes we could take before um, saying to the Mercosur countries, you know, well, produce this, but produce it better in, in that yeah. we are, of course, creating the demand. And whenever there's a demand for, you know, high-end, grass-fed Maria, Irish beef, there's going to be a demand for uh, cheaper, fully soy-fed um, feeding lot beef. You know, that's, mm-hmm. that's what happens at markets. And I do think, um, you know, our own dairy system and and beef system in Ireland is is so damaging, um, and and maybe that I'm maybe I'm just uncomfortable with the idea of, you know, the way you see sometimes people on Twitter <laughs> will say things like, um, uh, "Should we bring the Amazon into international control?" And I'm like, "E, yeah. no, can we not do that? Surely there's things to do in between, you know, us buying everything that." come from deforested areas and taking over like it, it feels like there's a huge in between there yeah absolutely and i guess my definition there of economic sanctions is more like we're not going to buy this stuff because it's covered in terrible climate change and and the essentially the blood of indigenous people um indigenous people have a campaign not one more drop um of their own blood basically um, because mm-hmm. they're, you know, they have their attacks on them and on their land have just skyrocketed since Bolsonaro was elected. Yeah, I should define what I mean by economic sanctions because really all I meant was um, not buying commodities that are linked to this stuff. In it, like instead of actively negotiating a deal that locks us into buying this stuff, I mean using the the muscle the economic muscle of trade to push for something better. So I don't necessarily mean before, after, during. I mean, okay, let's say right now I'm made the trade commissioner, which is obviously never going to happen. Because <laughs> what I would immediately do would be pause the the deal and say, we're not going to buy 
produce if we don't know where it came from okay. and if the country is actively working against their own Paris Agreement. In itself is a kind of an economic, well, it's an economic disincentive, let's call it, yeah. um, because we're no longer doing business with regions. But obviously that would create, like, that would be kind of a bit um, of a chaos thing to do. But I'm already living in the chaos of knowing what climate change will bring. So it's like we really need that level of strong action in order to avert true, absolute chaos of, of climate change and ecological collapse. And with that, Laura, with the actual ecological and environmental impacts of the deals, maybe can you narrow in on that or mm. just explain exactly what this deal could potentially mean for the environment and climate change? This is the thing about it, right? So the just taking the Amazon rainforest alone, it's um, it's this huge, magnificent place full of wildlife and indigenous people that have lived there for thousands and thousands of years. And it's on the brink of collapse. So we have now droughts in a rainforest, like droughts in a rainforest nearly every year. Um, and that's because deforestation is taking away the forest's capacity to create its own rain sort of system. So without going into like how that's done, I guess, I'll just say that the, the forest, it's, at, it's, it's reaching a tipping point where huge sections of it could transform into a kind of a dry savanna grassland state. And that would release a huge amount of carbon. It would cause an unbelievable number of species extinctions and it would just be absolutely devastating to the people that um, live in the Amazon and, and need a rainforest to survive. And their whole way of life is, you know, built around this. So it's not just like, you know, you can move to the city or something. It's really incredibly um, crucial for like all these different parts that the Amazon stays the Amazon. It also affects global weather patterns, um, the Amazon. And it also produces the rain in which agriculture in the region actually needs to survive because there's not much irrigation. Go like the, the agriculture, the actual soy farmers need rain from the rainforest. So the whole, so the whole system is at this crucial tipping point um, and if deforestation continues, it could just tip over and irreversibly become a savanna state. So that's the kind of point at which we're at with the Amazon. Um, there's other fantastic, amazing, like critical ecosystems in Latin America that don't get as much attention either. Like these huge, vast wetlands, which went on fire last year, like wetlands on fire. I mean, we're just hitting these, these states of nature that really didn't um this this kind of thing didn't really happen a couple of decades ago and now it's happening every single year so that's what scares me the most like we're at such a critical time right now that truly what we do in these next few years will have ramifications for probably hundreds of years and if we cross these tipping points there actually isn't an easy way to go back it's not like you can just reforest and things will recover for a complex system like the Amazon rainforest. Um, no, like we're going into completely uncharted territory. And for what? For a hamburger. Like, it's absurd. 
and I feel like people just don't realize the stakes are so high to make an awful pun at such a serious topic but it's like if we really got the importance of this I feel like there'd be more action around it right um you know like I'm thinking I'm just putting myself like in the shoes of somebody the Mercosur region that is that stands to gain from the short-term economic benefits farmers in the region do they want this deal to go ahead like on the ground um and I, I want to come on to like the the harms of indigenous people in a sec but like mm. you know is there an argument on the ground for the deal to increase their wealth yeah um so interestingly actually um originally like bolsonaro and his cabinet are kind of linked to the agricultural industry and the, and, and they were okay with um how things were going and then more and more kind of criticism was coming about um with regard to deforestation in brazil um and they're getting kind of more and more nervous about that because they don't want to lose business with the eu because that would mean real problems for them so the agricultural sector is kind of split a little bit where roughly um maybe we'll say half are still sort of on bolsonaro's track of develop 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 just go headlong Mm -hmm. and the other half are kind of like well hold on a second like longer term this does spell disaster and also we need international business so could we please just maybe put on the brakes a bit and think about this um and so there is a kind of growing percentage of farmers and even bigger players in the agricultural industry that are getting more and more nervous about the direction that Bolsonaro is pushing towards. So it's there's kind of an interesting split forming there. Okay. And the uh, Agra, you said there in your article, I was just coming across a kind of shocking um, statistic there that the, the global agribusiness sector is responsible for the most assaults on defenders and later on talking about the murders of indigenous people and they're obviously quite a vulnerable um, population um can you just talk to us a little bit about that like the impact this is having on indigenous people living in the region yeah absolutely um so that's kind of the the really heartbreaking bit i mean there's there's been so many attacks on local communities and indigenous peoples so um a couple of years ago it was 2017 brazil itself hit a global record of the highest number of murdered environmental defenders in one year that was 57 people and then in 2019 the murders of indigenous leaders hit um the highest level in two decades so things are really ramping up mm-hmm. and indigenous people are increasingly under attack and so like I mean it depends on the indigenous group and how they go about defending their land and a lot of different um factors at play but it seems like it's incredibly scary right now for them and they don't have the the worst thing about it is Bolsonaro is kind of in a way encouraging it because none of the um violence against indigenous people or local communities um really they're not investigated properly at all and very very few are prosecuted prosecuted or even brought to trial so 
it's like this lawlessness as well where people know they're going to get away away with it so what happens actually is that you have kind of criminal gangs going in um invading territories invading um villages killing people if you know they come up against them directly and of course the invading gangs have better weapons right um and so then often the place is just burnt um or fires are set and indigenous people just have to get the hell out of there and then the land is cleared and then cows and then actually what often happens is the land will be sold once it's already cleared and once maybe a few cows are on it to a farmer who had nothing to do with any of that violence or mayhem. And so the criminals then get the money from selling that land. Um, And then the farmer goes and has a few cows and does that for a while. And then the cows kind of flatten the land down and then they plant soy. So that's also worth kind of mentioning that um, in the statistics for what's actually driving deforestation, quite often it's soy but it's pushing out this frontier of cows first to flatten the land. So cattle like holds the highest percentage of deforestation. It's the direct cause, but often it's actually soy pushing that frontier out. And yeah, so that that whole chain of events and ultimately ending up in, you know, a sausage in in Ireland. It's just, um, it's, gruesome and it's awful and it's not talked about and it needs a lot more attention. I do remember um, during Bolsonaro's, during the election campaign, like he was quite inflammatory about indigenous groups in the Amazon. Um, I remember a lot of his, or a lot of the talk around his election campaign was about, you know, how much land they have and the resources they have and it basically how it wasn't fair so unfortunately it's not it's not hugely surprising I just can't imagine how terrifying it is when Bolsonaro was first elected I was I honestly I just got really depressed about what was going to happen because it was clear what was going to happen as Saoirse says about how he was talking about indigenous people and the environment it was very clear what he was going to try and do um so I I wrote a letter and and we got the support of 600 scientists in the EU and and two organizations that represent 300 indigenous groups in Brazil to say, you know, trade should really, the cornerstone of trade should be respect for the environment and human rights. Um, And yeah, working in line with these agreements that have already been made in terms of um, the United Nations Declaration on on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's kind of like, I mean, in a way, it's like a really obvious call, like, hey, you know, please don't screw over the things that we depend on or people. Um, And even though it's such an obvious call and like such a basic request, it's more or less been ignored. Um, And there's like the really frustrating thing is there are mechanisms that are available that we could implement that could achieve this. So it's not impossible. It's just that European leaders don't feel uh, the need to implement them somehow. So for example, um, there's the traceability mechanisms um, that we already mentioned, you know, using better cow tagging. There's also legal mechanisms that we could use, for example, 
um, collective redress is a good one. So right now, like say there's an indigenous uh, community or a local community that has been negatively impacted by um, trade, international trade. Um, to support these communities, we could include procedures where um, an impartial international legal forum could uh, be built where communities have access to justice. So right now, like if you're screwed over by by a trade deal, you have nobody to go to for that complaint. Um, so something like collective redress um, in an international setting where you where you have independent bodies who could assess that would be really, really important for supporting local communities in gaining access to justice. Um, because right now there's there's nothing like that that could help local communities get that justice, especially because they haven't been like local communities or indigenous groups have not been really considered in the negotiation of the deal like they were kept outside of that. So that's the other issue with this, like because I know one of the questions is always how do we therefore fix trade? It's like I'm a white woman in Ireland. I shouldn't like I shouldn't hold all the solutions because I'm not the one that's most affected by this. So we should go to the people that are most affected, most vulnerable, and see what they want done. Um, so Sonia Guatajara, she's an indigenous leader in Brazil, and she's amazing. Um, she suggests two clear benchmarks in line, really, with what we've been saying, um, and that's substantial substantial progress for ending, in, and sorry, so these benchmarks that Sonia suggests are really before considering any trade deal, these two benchmarks should be met. Mm -hmm. um, so substantial progress in ending impunity for violence against forest defenders, as measured by the number of cases investigated, prosecuted and brought to trial. And then the second benchmark is a reduction in deforestation rates that's sufficient to put the country back on track to meet its own targets under the Paris Agreement. So again, like European scientists and Brazilian indigenous groups, like we have the same call and it's still being ignored. Um, okay, so like even at the, there's no real, like that would kind of be, like that's shocking to me that there's no there, there is no internet like impartial procedure already set up that's like a given that should i would i would think that should be a given in international trade deals to have indigenous people involved in the negotiation table yeah um but, bit, sorry, go sorry. On. no just um that there are more mechanisms sort of outlined in the paper mm. um but ultimately it really is about inclusion of the voices the most vulnerable voices um because they're not being included right now. And they ultimately have the most important things to say about this. I'm wondering, perhaps, sorry, go on, Sarah. No, I was just gonna say now, perhaps this is, I don't know, not very professional of me, but I wonder, um, and I'd be interested to hear what you, your own feelings on it. I know it'd be just speculation, um, but is there, do you imagine trade deals which of course are premised on increased efficiency increased economic growth um between such large trading blocks such as you know Mercosur and the EU do you think there's any way that those could 
ever be um, tools to improve, like environmental conditions, improve human rights, or will they always be um, trade deals whereby you know you're you're just lucky if your human rights are not impacted or if the environment is not being destroyed? Like I, you know, I suppose part of me is skeptical that trade deals of this size will ever be anything but negative and something that you know will have negative connotations because when you're dealing with this industries of a certain scale um you know i suppose power and money does collect at the top and always will um and so will these you know do these trade deals always just result in like even if they come with a robust commitment is it always just you know a chipping away at human rights um or do you think i'm being too negative to think something like that that like that exact question is what keeps me up at night because that's the answer to that question um changes a lot and like changes a lot how i want to go about working in this space because definitely I see that so much of trade is really actually built on colonialism and on taking advantage um which is colonialism I guess to summarize um so it's 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 kind of the age-old question of like do you work within the system or do you try and break it down because ultimately if if the EU is actually never up for reforming and doing things in a way that respects local communities, then absolutely we need to rebuild. But right, I feel like there's a happy medium within that where right now we're in a place where unexpected things can happen. Like a few years ago, I'd say this trade deal could have just sort of passed under the radar. Um, and now you have youth climate activists meeting in person with Angela Merkel and Merkel saying, oh, I don't think we're going to be able to pass this as it currently stands because there's so much pressure now. So it's like going on the old story for sure. Like the answer is there is no hope and the EU is going to do what the EU has always done. And let's work on building up local communities and, you know, local food networks that will help us transition ultimately but the way the kind of sense that I have now is that things are changing really rapidly and and it's actually getting more and more unpredictable how things will go and just maybe we get some kind of changes that could have these ripple out effects that ultimately could maybe stop the Amazon from tipping so it kind of there's so many different aspects to that question that I've never been able to come up with an answer um and I think I think ultimately bringing more attention to these issues and bringing more attention to the fact that we're ignoring the people that are most vulnerable hopefully can't be a bad thing but it is, it's incredibly tricky because I would hate for my work to be used in a way in which it will actually ultimately allow the Mercosur deal to pass and then do loads of damage, which it, it could be used in that way, like which would be the worst possible use 
of the paper. Because really what we're saying quite clearly, I hope, is that we need to include local communities and we need to know what we're buying, where it came from. And we need to uphold the Paris Agreement in some legally binding way. Because the shocking thing about the Paris Agreement is it's not legally binding either. Like, it's a bit of a joke. Um, so, yeah, so that's kind of my long rambling answer to a question that I ask myself all the time, including like that question extends out to should I keep being a scientist when we're not really listening to the science that we already have? Like the whole the like the whole issue really is that we sort of have enough information already. We're just not acting on it. And we're not acting on it for like loads of different speculative reasons, but we have the information, we have the solutions, we sort of just about maybe have the time, and we're still not like springing to action. Um, <laughs> does that in any way answer your question? And I mean, we are springing to action in various, I'm not saying like nobody's doing anything, we're just not doing it at the rate needed to avert catastrophe. Yeah, well, it answers my question in that like I often have the same thing around um, politics and I often, mm. I often think I'm like, should I just go and start prepping somewhere high above sea level where, you know, I can start bringing people in and eventually have some sort of like post-apocalyptic community? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, that's one extreme of it. Or because well, similarly, I'm like, I think, you know, there's enough science to know. I often yeah. think about what uh, Mike Ryan was saying when he was talking about the coronavirus. He said, um, something along the lines of speed is the most important thing here yeah. rather than perfection and so I do often wonder you know what is what is the point but anyway we've kind of gone off into a completely different um, question one which could fill podcasts no doubt um, have you any other questions Emma? Laura you did make it out very clear in the article what needs to happen your three tenets of inclusion, transparency and enforcement of being an integral part of the negotiation of any free trade agreement. Has any trade agreement in the past passed the sustainability test? No. I'm just kind of um, showing like trade has a huge part to play in all of the environmental issues we see today, like between a quarter and two thirds of um, greenhouse gas emissions, agricultural commodity, biodiversity loss, deforestation, like it's it's all linked to international trade and trade seems to have gone somewhat under the radar, like the role that trade could play in in potentially helping to fix these issues. It's like, it's almost like in a system, there's all these different levers that you can pull and you can see what impact they could have. And like the higher up you go, the harder it is to pull those levers because, you know, you're you're trying to shift the whole system. Um, but if one of them moves, you have huge, huge ramifications and impacts rippling out from that. So that's kind of how I see it, that like this is a leverage point that we haven't really looked at properly and that could have really big um, ripple effects, really positive potentially. But of course, 
you need to really shift that system quite fundamentally because it's so much of what we trade is completely unnecessary. Like when you also look at a, an individual country, it's importing a load of the same stuff that it's exporting, like just because it's locked in these weird cycles. Or for example, um, Denmark imports a load of soy to feed to pigs to make sausages to sell to China. Like it's all just so um, weird and ultimately inefficient. So, so it's kind of like, my my main point is that there's so much money power um negative impact locked up in trade but just maybe there's ways in which to untangle that and shift systems um for the better naive but the higher up the system you go the more naive you have to be so it's like looking at the entire system and looking at those different points um and figuring out what, what merits more exploration, I guess. So Bolsonaro, I mean, yeah, like that's the thing, just taken really simply at a really simple, the Amazon might flip, that would really like wreck a lot of climate chances, wreck a lot of lives of people living in the Amazon, ruin whole ecosystems. So just on that level, Bolsonaro, he cares about the economy. We can safely say he cares about the economy, the Brazilian economy. And so, if the EU were to stand up and say, okay, listen, this has gone too far. We're not going to be able to buy soy and beef until you stop deforestation. We know Brazil can curb deforestation. They've done it before. Um, they were making great progress towards curbing deforestation and also pretty good progress economically too. Like it is possible to do both in a country. So we know it's possible and we know Brazil is, we know Bolsonaro is motivated by the economy so it's like that one leverage point is right there it's just someone needs to pull it and maybe it's the new trade commissioner maybe it's a european leader like how macron kind of called out you know that that last year but didn't actually take action on it that's mm -hmm. the thing so a couple of this is a funny story actually just maybe might kind of show how this really is an option a couple of farmers from ireland went out to brazil a few years ago right and they did this like investigation and they found that um brazilian farmers weren't vaccinating their cows properly and it was a health risk for i think it must have been foot of mouth or mad cow disease oh what was it i need to look it up anyway they did this investigation like if like i'm talking like four or five farmers just flew out themselves and they found all these vaccination needles thrown in bins not even opened and the European Union, like for for a few weeks, actually banned imports of Brazilian beef. Um, I can't remember the details now. It might have been just a few days, but they banned it really quickly. And so they like they have the means to do this. And then Brazil, of course, took really swift action and changed and met whatever health and safety criteria they needed to meet to continue selling. So it's like it's right there. This option um that's what really gets me so ultimately might not fix it ultimately we need to completely transform trade ultimately power structures need to change i think um citizens assemblies are brilliant for that because that puts difficult decisions back to the people that politicians might not want to make um so i'm a big fan now of citizens assemblies over like traditional politics but yeah 
the the options are there for transforming this it's just getting the momentum and the will to do so okay um yeah that just brings me on to i suppose the one what the last question i want to ask is uh your your actual work um at the moment what you're doing but before i get there going forward what can the irish government do to get to that that happy balance between looking after the environment and also consider also helping economic growth Uh, good question. Um, so I think within this topic, what we could do is use our own creativity to bring attention to this issue. So, for example, um, what if what if people around the country started doing funny, interesting things to bring attention to the fact that our meat isn't really our meat. It's like quite often fed um, soy from deforested areas. So I'm like, one thing I keep thinking about doing but not doing is going into a supermarket and sticking stickers on meat packages showing like the real ingredients. Um, anything that we can do like to bring more attention to this issue would be good because the deal right now is being paused um, but even if the deal is paused indefinitely, we're still importing so much already. Um, I think there's a lot of creativity there. Like we all learn, we all seem to learn about the impact of palm oil because orangutans. So I think we need like storytellers, we need creative artists, we need performances, we need everybody and anybody who has an interest in this to kind of put their own creative juices to work. I think also like this isn't obviously the only issue. So I think in general, anybody who has an interest or a like deep love for something to work on that and to realize that they do, that they are needed in this. Like very few people in um, activists in climate change actually wanted to be climate change activists. It's just that we learned about this stuff. We got really concerned and we and we got active so it's like we need everyone on board in all of the different ways in which people are talented um and only then will we kind of hit critical mass in which the system itself will have to change because enough people will be demanding that it does right okay so it's like to generate more public awareness and then that it's that in itself will put pressure politically at the policy level um Laura, I never asked you at the start, but I'm interested just to know your own current um, situation, like what you're working on at the moment. How how did you get to working on the Mercosur deal? Yeah, that's a good question. I kind of just fell into it because I was so concerned about what was going to happen in Brazil. Um, so my background is in agriculture and biodiversity. So um, I've so right now I'm working on a couple of different projects. I'm working on um, a project in Colombia looking at planting trees in farms and how that benefits biodiversity and how that benefits animal welfare, farmers' profits, how basically these trees are just benefiting everyone, as trees generally do, assuming they're native. Um, so that's one thing I'm working on. I'm also working a little bit more on the Mercosur deal, um, looking at the potential deforestation impacts of the deal long term. And a couple of other projects. I'm working on um, a project 
assessing well what if we actually taxed food according to its climate impact um because that's another way in which the system could shift quite uh quickly because people don't buy what's expensive and um right now the project that we're looking at is germany because germany actually has like tax breaks for meat which is just absurd um so even just charging like an appropriate amount for me would already do big big things the other side of all of this is like we're subsidizing the meat industry so heavily and we're subsidizing the fossil fuel industry like we're actually governments are actually giving money to the industries that are creating most of the problems so um so i'm also looking at global subsidies and how they're kind of absurd um, and I'm also just having a slight midlife crisis existential breakdown of thinking about, you know, all of the like all of these points have sort of already been made and thinking about what's ultimately like the best use of my time, because I do wonder sometimes truly what that is. And maybe I need to think more creatively myself in how I go about um addressing these issues or working on them mm -hmm. so one like one thing i worked on um was green santa it's this it's a new santa claus uh santa's older brother and you write to him about what you want to see uh, for the planet for christmas it's deargreensanta.org and it's it's really nice because it's like we're so caught up in what we're against we don't really take the time to think about how fantastic things could be like how it's not just about reducing emissions or stopping eating meat. Like we could have really healthy, fantastic lives with way more free time, way less stress, way more community. Um, and so taking the time to sort of really think about what we truly want and working towards that. So that's another sort of thing that I've been um, spending time on. So yeah, that's kind of what I've been up to a little bit. Sounds great. Um, your article with One Earth was really brilliant. And I'm wondering, do you have any more? Have you got any more articles of a similar ilk that I haven't come across? Um, so the letter inside the letter that I wrote that got um all those scientists and indigenous groups to sign on to, that was published in Science two years ago. And that was good. That was like a good summary. Um, those are the only two kind of published academic articles, but there's some other articles in like um the conversation uh, that i could send on as well there's like a couple of other pieces that we wrote just for the public summarizing it. um a short video i made on twitter with a friend of mine who just makes these brilliant videos um he's also the one that runs the twitter page what is it like pop takes down Cita. he's doing oh that's brilliant <laughs> What's it called? Like Pop Eats Cita? Pop Eats Cita, yeah. It's so lovely. It's so good. Like he also, if you look up the album, like he matches the font perfectly. He's yeah. ridiculously talented. Yeah. So um uh so I made a video with him on, on the trade uh deal and what it meant on Twitter too. So yeah, working on more videos and more papers, but um, Brilliant. So to stop the go the deal going ahead, like the main solution would be to get as many EU member states against signing the deal to keep pausing it and maybe. Um, 
I mean, my main goal would be to stop importing deforestation, stopping the deal. My concern around focusing just on stopping the deal is that it won't solve the fact that we're importing all this damage. My main um, call would be to transform how we think about trade in general and use the Green New Deal as a way in which to do this. Because like the Mercosur deal clearly goes against the actual goals outlined in the European, in the Green Deal. No net emissions by 2050. Well, beef and soy have like some of the highest emissions in the whole world in terms of what you're going to eat. So not ideal. And then importing biofuels via sugar that's also causing deforestation to get to your no net emissions goals. It's just like, come on. And then the second like goal of the European Green Deal, economic growth decoupled from resource use. Please, like ne that's never been shown in any a fantasy. Way. Yeah. And like I was I, I'm a co-author on a paper showing how even biodiversity policy itself has economic growth built in and how absurd that is. And we really looked into whether or not any system has managed to decouple um, resource use from economic growth and it just hasn't happened. Like, so again, like the second, what is like, what a ridiculous goal to include in a green deal. Like that just shows how much economic growth is embedded in the European Union's thinking. Like, and then the yeah. third goal, just a final smack in the face, like no person and no place is left behind. Well, did you include the people most vulnerable uh, in your Mercosur agreements? No, you didn't. Mm. So it's, yeah, so like really just kind of showing how trade is this glaring exception to all the rules and all the new like shining examples the EU is trying to set. So what's my main goal? Sorry. Yeah, to stop importing human rights abuses and deforestation, ultimately. So due diligence is another good mechanism where um, companies have to actually show their supply chains aren't causing damage. And if they are, they need to like, well, according to the French due diligence, just pay fines. But you could go further than that. And it could actually you could actually be criminally responsible for um issues in your own company's supply chains so getting into kind of um ecocide law ecocide is really really um bringing like that as an actual international law where it would be illegal to destroy ecosystems that could change a huge amount really quickly that's another amazing leverage point that could transform transform yes. things ultimately we can't sort of get completely defeated because something's going to work like we're all tapping on the wall at different spots and something will work and then the bit of the wall will crumble and we'll get a little bit further so I just think like I think so many people care about environmental stuff and human rights stuff and they're just depressed and kind of defeated and it's like even if the chances are only tiny it's still worth a shot um, that's kind of how I see it anyway it's like what else am I going to be doing this stuff is too important and right now is just such a crazy time to be alive where things can really go right now like in a way you know we can see the system shaking a little bit and it's genuinely up to all of us to see how we can move that could spark new ways of living and that was 
Dr. Laura Kehoe speaking to us, a scientist who is a co-author of a paper called Inclusion, Transparency and Enforcement, How the EU Mercosur Trade Agreement Fails the Sustainability Test. That is published on One Earth.